Hello, I'm Clover Stroud and welcome to Tiny Acts of Bravery. This week, my guest is DJ, broadcaster and writer Annie McManus. I was fascinated to talk to Annie about the bravery of ambition and what it took for her to go from being a young girl in Dublin, dreaming of being a DJ, to becoming one, if not the most successful DJs in the world, playing in front of crowds of tens of thousands. I also really love talking to her about the big career pivot she took, leaving Radio 1 to become a novelist. I really enjoyed delving into the nature of creative bravery too, and the kind of courage it takes to push forward with an artistic career in the face of rejection. We also touched on an often neglected kind of bravery, that of motherhood. It was a real pleasure to speak to Annie and there's so much to take from this interview. I really hope you enjoy it. Annie, it's so lovely to be here with you. And you're just fresh back from Glastonbury. How are you feeling? Well, fresh, I wouldn't say is the correct <laughs> word, Clover. <laughs> it's day four of my return and um, the struggle is still real. I know, it's not too bad. My my voice is nearly back. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all worth it. Mm. It was just the loveliest time. Mm. It was very needed in many ways, just to have some really concentrated time with my friends. Yeah. And Glastonbury is actually one of the places in the world that I feel the most free because no one can reach me. Right. <laughs> That's cool, I'm unreachable. <laughs> I'm just, you just really get to check out, you know. Your voice has been massively in my head as well in the last few days because I've been rereading your amazing second book, The Mess We're In. And first of all, I wanted to ask you about how did you party like that and keep your shit together? Because even reading the book sort of gave me a bit of a mental health battering, just remembering mm. that thing of that level of hedonism. Well, a lot a lot of people who read it, I think, felt a little bit triggered in a yeah. way. It's like, <laughs> God. And I really wanted to show that, like, a lot of hedonism because in the world that I was in when I moved to London, that was very normalised. Mm. It was no sense of it being a kind of really far out thing to do. It just was everywhere. And... I guess it's, you know, it's post-90s culture, it's post-Oasis, it's, you know, it's aspirational. Mm. Everyone is getting rat and, you know, from celebrities falling out of nightclubs being the thing that you see in every newspaper or magazine, it, it was a huge part of culture. So I wanted to show that. I mean, the book is a not an autobiography, but it's definitely like based on theme, like thematically things that I know. So living with a band. Yeah being around hedonistic mm. people, being an Irish person in England, mm. moving to a new city, all of that stuff was stuff that I felt like I wanted to write about. And I'm really a- appreciative of you for reading it again. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> I really, really loved it. Um, and I was a teenager in the mid-90s, so I caught the sort of end of the kind of free yeah. party scene and the rave scene and that feeling of that kind of music was just like such an important part of my life, I suppose, yeah. when I was much younger. And I think there's something so sort of being taken there straight away is really triggering and it is really exciting. Mm. And it, it kind of makes you feel a bit nervous as well. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I guess there's this is constant sense of jeopardy, I suppose. Like the way that we live now, well, because we're older, we're in our 40s. Mm. Like, you know, I look back at that, I have children and I think, how did I get through that? unscathed my 20s you know never having been I was so I was so egregiously lucky to not have been taken advantage of to not have had something bad happen to me you know um, in terms of like just where I ended up parties and after parties and after after parties and 
you know, traveling around the world with friends, yeah. being really <laughs> Do you wild. think there's an element that that kind of hedonism, which is a kind of real fuck it type of head of mm. you know it's like mm. really let's go let's really really get out of our heads and yeah. it's kind of almost like a primal thing yes do you think there is a kind of bravery to that in itself mm. I think I don't know I've been trying to think about bravery this morning and, and what it is I think I think there's a sense of stepping off the edge of something mm. and allowing yourself to free fall and not knowing how you're going to feel or where you're going to end up. There's there's a sense of it's either bravery or recklessness. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> a heady mix of both, maybe. Yeah. Um there's there's something beautiful about it. And I think when you marry it with the music mm. behind it, you know, this sense of kind of repetitive beats and collective euphoria mm. that you feel when you dance with people to loud music. There's something Definitely, definitely primal about mm. it. There's something like elemental, mm. I think, about it. Well, there is also, when I think about raving, and for me it was like being outside in the countryside and techno and then that feel of, feeling of being like it was crossing classes, it was crossing so mm. crossing so many different groups of people. And there was something about it getting light and, and there being techno playing and the sort of wildness of it. That was also a, an escape from, which I guess is for many people as well, escape from parental life, escape yeah. from school, escape from the feelings that we have as adolescents, which might be scaring us or holding us back in some way. Mm. And that sort of unity of raving and, and clubbing and partying, I think, is a really beautiful thing. And goodness, you know that like better than anybody I else. Do, but I'm actually, I feel like I, I wish I could have experienced it in the way you did because that kind of parallel of the raving but in nature, mm. I've never had, mm. apart from at a festival maybe. Mm. But I would love, I, like, mm. you know, all of my raves have been in dark sweat boxes, clubs, confined spaces, which kind of intensify it. Mm. But... um I, I mean, I love the idea of doing it that way. I, it feels right. It feels very right to be able to do it yeah, under the sky. You know? There is a real, real beauty to that mm. kind of sense of nature as well. I would love to, if you could share with me your talisman, because I'm asking everybody to bring a talisman in, something that makes them feel brave or lucky or strong or maybe all those things at the same time. What's your talisman? So I was, I was chatting with my husband and my oldest son this morning, or last night actually, about what it could be. And I said, I was like, I, I need to think about what thing, a thing that makes me feel brave or that like, um, and my husband went, you're brave all the time. Mm, that's interesting. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And then my son was like, he's standing, he was like, yeah, well, every time you do a gig, you're brave. And then that I did relate to because I still find gigs hard. It's not something I don't think you ever just swan in and get comfortable with doing. The, it's not the playing music or the technical side of delivering a mm. set that I find hard. It's the standing in front of people, mm. being a performer. And the nature of clubbing hasn't always been this way, but it's turned into this way, is that everybody stands and faces the DJ and it kind of expects something mm. of them. And I feel that weight of that very deeply. Mm. And I used to get hammered and, and that would be how I'd do it. I'd have, you know, two or three vodka tonics and more as I played yeah. and crowd surf and, you know, be wild. But, you know, in my 30s, I had to stop doing that. And um, now it's still, you know, I have a loud internal dialogue in my head that goes all the way through. And it, it's just something that still doesn't come fully uh, easily to me. So I brought this thing 
which is very odd, but it's a little badge. It's a homemade badge that someone gave me at a gig quite recently, actually. Mm. And it's, uh, I'll describe it. It's its a heart-shaped badge. It's a heart cut out of cardboard. And um, it's got a bit of red paper stuck onto it. And it says in handwritten words, I love music more than anything. And I get all sorts of presents and gifts given to me when mm. I DJ. But I just thought someone making this to give to me was really moving actually and really it's meaningful yeah because it's it's a thread from them to me yeah. it's a it's a kind of physical manifestation of our connection which happens when I DJ mm. which is kind of I just found it beautiful and for me it's a way of remembering that when I gig it's what it means to people you know yeah. what I mean what the music means to people yeah and what it does for me because it does fill me up as well gigging you know that it's not a negative experience it's very important that I say that mm. it's not something I'm fully comfortable with the performative aspect but when a gig goes well there's no better feeling and when you feel like you've you've directly connected with people in a physical way and in a figurative way you know with music in an emotional way it's it's everything I think what you've just said though the connection is the key thing because that's what we're all wanting and craving and needing in life in sort of all aspects of life isn't it and I suppose in with the idea of bravery we kind of need other people to say yeah you can do it you can do this or mm. you're going to be alright mm. and it's beautiful that little little like homemade badge is a really really lovely thing it's also lovely the thought of you performing in front of I mean what's the biggest crowd you performed in front of uh I think it was recently, actually, I supported Harry Styles. Uh, yeah, I saw that so was that like, was like 80,000. massive <laughs> But actually, they were all women and kind of young girls. Yeah. So it was quite unique. It was a beautiful crowd. You connect it, using music to connect like that mm. and to kind of bring people so much joy and connect them to one another as mm. well. And that um, your, your brooch there, the homemade brooch, is a really, really lovely exemplification of that, definitely. It is, and it kind of grounds you as well. It, it's like it reminds me of why we're here. Mm. You know, we're all mm. just here for one thing. Mm. We need this sense of connecting to each other mm. through music. And that's all it is, really. Mm. And it's kind of, it's a good reminder. I'm really interested to hear, though, that you find it nerve-wracking because mm. you see, you know, I've seen you performing on the TV or something. You think, what does that feel like to be walking out? What is Annie feeling like going out in front of a massive, massive crowd of people? Obviously, as a DJ, it's a particularly gigantic crowd. How do you kind of deal with the nerves of that then? It's not really the feeling. It's, it's kind of, it's the being stared at. Right. It's the being it's the being the subject of people's attention is the bit that I find hard. So for me the actual the DJing is what carries me through. The having something to do, the fiddling with the knobs, the selecting mm. the tunes, that gets me through. And normally for the first half hour I would be afraid to kind of look up and really catch someone's eye. Um I'd kind of give everyone a wave and like smile and uh, but then after a while, I'd relax enough into it and um, be able to, like, you know, look at people and say hi and stuff. But I think it's just it's just the same as as anyone. If you're walking into a room and you have 2,000 people staring at you, mm. it's kind of absurd. It's kind mm. of strange. <laughs> and, and that's the essence of it, you know. I'm, I'm not a natural exhibitionist. It's not something that comes naturally to me. I was thinking of people who I thought were brave on the way here and I was thinking of Roisin Murphy who's one of my mm. favourite artists, music artists ever. And she's someone who I kind of idolised because she seems completely 
the opposite of what I am in that. So natural in the spotlight. Not just natural, but like a flower that blossoms yeah. in the spotlight. I can just, oh, just perform so effortlessly. Um, and I'm just not that. I'm a bit awkward. I can't really dance. I'm stiff. I just feel <laughs> it's that classic DJ, you know, DJ thing. DJs can't dance. We, we're here to play the tunes. <laughs> I love dancing, but I just don't really feel mm. like I'm very good. And do you have to say, to, so as you walk on, do you, you feel cool with that? But it's like once you're there then, is it? But as you, as you walk just, on, do you have to say, come on, you could do this? Or is it you, if you've done it so I, many thousands? No, I don't have a word with myself. I just go through the motions. Yeah. I just go and I just get on with it mm. and talk to myself in my head mm. a lot mm. and, and, and tell myself to look up mm. and tell myself to stop fucking... <sighs> fiddling and look up and get into it and I just say yeah I guess there is a sense of a kind of internal pep talk happening yeah, yeah. and when you've done it are you then on just like a gigantic heart how do you kind of deal with the next bit because there's also like the rush of doing so it and then then what do you do where do you take all that energy so when you mad. walk off stage it's it's so mad it's such a cliche like when you come off a stage and you you know half an hour later you're in a bed in a silent hotel room. <laughs> the ears are still ringing you know your, your head is aching I always get a headache when I DJ I don't know why I think it's a loud music but recently anyway that's that's happened but yeah you, you feel kind of very physically like you're kind of the music is ricocheting around mm. inside you still a lot of the time I would look back at um you know tagged videos and just look at look at the gig from a different perspective mm. from people on the floor's perspective mm. and see what it looks like um and then hopefully just yeah just wind down but it is such an extreme difference and again it's changed quite extremely because you know 10 years ago I would have been sticking around for drinks sure and yeah now I'm I'm quite like I just get get out quite quick and get home mm. um so yeah there is a period of just having to sit and let the music kind of seep out of you let, mm. the, let the kind of intensity seep out of you over a period of an hour until you feel your natural tiredness comes back mm. and the adrenaline is gone. It's a beautiful image, that thought of the music, like leaving you, yeah. having been part of you and then leaving you. I really am curious about how you get from where you were as a child. And I've listened to various interviews and read interviews with you talking about your childhood, which sounds very happy and, you know, a very sort of solid childhood. And there's a description that you were talking about recently of starting um, drama quite late on in your schooling career and getting really into drama and then getting your heart set on going to university to study drama and not getting the place, you know, mm. doing the audition and not getting the place and going up to the bathroom and you had long dark hair mm. and you cut off your ponytail, which went down to your bum, mm -hmm. I believe. And it's such a, you know, it's such a powerful image that. <laughs> such a drama queen. <laughs> such Clearly. a drama queen. And actually your hair, you so know, your teenage. amazing curly dark hair is like a really distinct part mm. of your identity as well. Can you tell me a bit more about how that felt and how, whether it was a significant moment in growing up to become the person you were, you are now? Yeah, I, I will start with how it felt like I was devastated. Mm. And I think at school you have a, or I had a sense of having to really choose my vocation. And that was going to be me. And that was going to identify everything about who I was. I had no sense of being a multi-hyphenate, you know, person. Mm. I didn't know you could change your mind after a couple of years and do something else. Mm. Like it was just like, okay, I have to be this. Mm. So, and I hadn't known what I was going to be. And then acting felt so natural. And I loved it that uh, I kind of 
was sure that that was it. And uh, when I didn't get into the course, I, it wasn't just that I didn't get in, but it was also a kind of realisation that I didn't really know what I was doing right. compared to the other people there. It was kind of like, oh, I've never done acting apart from being in one play. All these people have done amateur <laughs> theatre for their whole childhood. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so it was a kind of like a, um, you know, a, this kind of realisation that I wasn't good enough maybe. Um, and, a, and that kind of manifested into just complete self-hatred, just like that real teenage yeah. kind of like, who do I think mm. I am? Um, thus the cutting of the hair, the bringing, bringing the, the ponytail to my mother in a plastic bag, giving it to her, saying, I don't want to see that anymore. And like my hair was really short, you know, like it, it was maybe blade kind of three or four, like a short boy's, you know, crew cut or whatever. Mm. And I didn't know what to do next. I was really stuck. Um, and I think looking back now, it was really good for me that because I needed to know that not everything goes your way. Mm. And I needed to know that you don't have to put all of your hopes and dreams into one thing. Um, and I did a big kind of screeching handbrake turn and went and pursued something else, which was English literature, mm. which was something I had always loved and wanted to kind of pursue, you know, anyway. Uh, but just not with the kind of passion, I suppose, of drama and not with the very clear result at the end of it that, that I could be an actor, you know, with English. I, I'd never thought about being a teacher. Weirdly, never thought about being a writer as a vocation. Mm. Um, but I just like reading and, and, and writing and writing poetry and stuff. So, um, yeah, I think at the time it felt huge. It felt like I was stuck, I was trapped. It was my mother, actually, who really helped me out of the hole I was in by suggesting going up to... Um, Queen's University in Belfast and studying English literature. She had done that. She was the first person in her family to go to uni. She ended up being an English teacher and she she was like, why don't you try and go there? And I got in. And by doing that, I don't know, like looking back, if she knew what she was, if she thought through that much, but that did so much for me, leaving home, going to Belfast, which is a two hours drive north of Dublin. So it's definitely far enough away to feel like you've moved out of home. Because I, I, I was able to then start completely all over again. No baggage. No one knew who my brothers and sisters were. No one knew what school I went to. No one knew what religion I was. I was able to go up there and be whoever I wanted to be. And I wasn't sure who I wanted to mm. be. But I had the space to figure that out and allow that to evolve. And because of that, um, I, I just, I kind of really was led by my passions hugely in that place. Um, and ended up, you know, going clubbing and falling in love with clubbing and getting a job at the club I used to frequent. And that's where I kind of really fell in love with music and club culture and dance music. And that just, I just don't think that would have happened if I'd stayed. If you stayed in Dublin. And you might have stayed presumably living at home, maybe. Maybe it was that thing of having Very to do so. something slightly courageous of leaving your safer environment. And you're the, you're the youngest I'm the of youngest five. I'm the youngest of four, yeah. Of four, four yeah. Right, yeah. I actually remember sitting in the halls. So I had a shared room in the halls. And I remember sitting in this room. Um, my mum and dad, like, oh, I think my mum dropped me up. And then they went off and I was sat in this room and the, the other bed was like the person wasn't there and I mm. hadn't met her yet. And mm. I was like, I remember looking at her clothes in the wardrobe trying to like figure out who, what type of person I was mm. going to be sharing a room with for an entire year. I didn't know who she was. Mm. And that feeling of just like fear in my gut of just not knowing, you know. But um, it turned out 
incredibly. You've also talked about, um, you know, you say that's when you started going clubbing and you really fell in love with clubbing and you were working in a nightclub, I think, stamping wrists. And yes. So did you actually think at that stage, I mean, I'd love to know about the sort of bravery of ambition. Did you think, yes, I can be a DJ, especially at that stage when there were far fewer female mm. DJs at that stage? Do you feel like it was a especially brave and bold decision or was it just that sort of youthful energy of, yeah, yeah, I can do this. I can be a DJ. I think it was, I think it was the latter. Mm. It was that, it was latter, but I, I mean, I remember the moment when I thought I wanted to do it and I was, I had really horrible tonsillitis and I was stood at the, guarding the door to the green room where the DJs came in and out of, which was one of my jobs. And there was an American DJ, Chicago DJ called DJ Sneak playing. And he played that Armand Van Helden tune, You Don't Know Me. Do you know that one? No. You don't even know me. People listening might know from my <laughs> terrible singing. Um, and I remember like this kind of ripple of energy moving over the crowd and just being like, whoa, that's mad mm. to watch how a song can move a crowd. Mm. And and to, to kind of, it's kind of alchemy to kind of, you know, to create a new energy in the room, a kind of hired, higher energy. And I remember thinking I wanted to do it. And all my friends that I went clubbing with were blokes. And I bought a pair of decks off my friend Mickey Murphy and a terrible box of techno records. And so I think something in, like, I never hesitated in taking it up as a hobby because mm. it was just something I wanted to try. And I will have probably had designs to do it. But I'd never once seen a woman DJ. Mm. Every DJ that ever came to this club, which was called Shine in Belfast, amazing DJs, you know, global DJs, they were all men. The people who ran it were all men. There was one woman who did the visuals, I think. She's a graphic designer. So it was kind of, I'd never seen a woman in that position. But at the same time, I was listening to Radio 1 and Marianne Hobbs was doing a late night Monday night show called Breeze Block. And she had a profound effect on me in being a voice, a woman's voice in a world of kind of gatekeeping men that was wise and funny and knowing and just so cool and so aspirational and she really I think burrowed in there mm. and helped me realize that there was a place in that world of of music that I was like vociferously collecting and being obsessive about that I could maybe inhabit so it's her I have to thank and it's her that kind of helped me figure out that maybe radio was a place I could be. I didn't think that DJing was a vocation. I thought it was just a passion. Mm. So I, radio to me felt like the very sensible and also just more f feasible uh, career choice at that point. So that's what I pursued. Right. And then when I got my show on Radio 1, uh, it was then that the gigs started rolling in and, and the kind of DJ career took off. And that was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> was it terrifying? <laughs> absolutely terrifying because I was a woman. Right. And I had a sense of having to prove myself twice over mm. because of that. And a sense of people stood at the front line. Okay, let's see what she can, can she mix? Can she really mix? And, you know, I used to show up at the gigs and I'd have the entire set planned out and written in order on a piece of paper. Mm. I'd come and I'd take out my little piece of paper and unfold it and put it down and flatten it out. Hi guys, don't mind me, it looked so uncool. <laughs> and then and then get my vinyl and, and start playing. And I remember my boyfriend at the time would stand behind me and be like, just look up and smile. They just want you to smile. Because like, I'll be so fucking 
like like terrified of doing a bad mix because to me the mixing the technical side was the test mm. of whether I could be a DJ or not um obviously I know now if I do a bad mix it's fine you get over it. it's you know it's not everyone does it mm. so it's okay but uh back then it just felt like this really big and terrifying test so I guess, you know, there's still elements to how I DJ now that are the same as that. You know, the looking up and smiling always takes me a little while to really feel brave enough to connect with people who are, you know, who are staring at me. It's beautiful hearing somebody as, like, a brilliant at what they do and as successful as you talking about starting out and and that fear, you know, and what that, and what that felt like and how you kind of... Um, dealt with that I suppose and for anybody listening that when you're trying to establish yourself as something whether it's a DJ or a chef or whatever it is that you're trying to do and you don't actually think of yourself as that being as it were yeah well, what point did you start thinking yeah I'm I'm a DJ and I'm good at this I think it's just I think it's very very um, gradual mm. I don't think there's ever one specific moment where it arrive you arrive mm. Maybe the way that people start talking about you changes, but I think this, it's the same with anything. When you do one thing for long enough and you be, you become fluent at it, I suppose, you become it becomes natural to you. Um, I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't have like a distinct like moment. No, when that I think, happened. but I think it is true. It's lots of life, and mostly the changes in life are small things that happen. Then you look back and you say, "God, that's completely changed yeah. from where I was a few years ago." Yeah. And I do think my my life, especially from from that age, from when I was about 26 when I got my radio show, until I was about 40, probably about 15 years, was such a whirlwind. Mm. There was never time to stop and reflect. Mm. There was never time to stop and be like, oh, look at me, I'm doing great. It was mm. just like, no, no matter how big or special or life-changing the gig would be or the career moment would be, it's always on to the next thing, mm. always. Mm. And that's one thing I'm trying really hard now in my 40s to, to just kind of just stuff take it in yeah take it in feel it and be present in it right Mm. yeah there's another um woman that you've spoken about called Pam who I was really interested in Mm. um who you said that when you were you were working in production and that she was a real badass single woman and running a production company and like you you said that you love listening to the way that she dealt with computer supplies, which I love the idea of that, and that you'd never never heard a woman with such convictions in her arguments. What did she tr- teach you about being brave and putting mm. yourself forward? I mean, just to say my my whole career is peppered with wonderful women mm. who've given me legs up here and there, like I, it really is, and she was probably the the biggest one because. Yeah, she she took me on to run her office. It was a music promotions office. So she represented amazing people, Roots Maneuva, PJ Harvey, brilliant like alternative music artists. And she um, got their music played on the radio and on the telly. And my job was to run her office. And I learned so much off her. But I think what she represented to me was a sense of a woman in a man's world on her own being fearless. Mm. And that manifested in lots of ways. She drove a black BM. Everywhere she went, she got a parking space. <laughs> you know what I mean? She's just one of those yeah. women. She'd just drive around London at night. She'd go to two, we'd go, we'd go gig hopping, we'd go two or three gigs. She always knew where to park. Mm. She knew the city. Mm. She knew 
you know, she would get so annoyed with Dell on the phone when the computers were broken and she would give let rip with them. And I'd never really heard mm. someone talk like that to people. I don't know, I was quite innocent in a lot of ways or, or just not that exposed to that many different types of people. She was American. Mm. Right. Still is American. She's a life coach now. Um, so it was just amazing to see a woman with her own small company um, on the grind and learning underneath her. And she actually... She saw what I was trying to do. So she saw that I was trying to get into radio. I was honest with her. And at lunchtimes, I would head off to another radio station and record interviews with bands or, you know, any chance I had, I would yeah. be trying to do the radio thing. And she saw that. And she was the one who spoke to one of the editors at Radio 1 to say, you need to give this girl some time. And she didn't have to do that. Mm. I worked for her. Mm. It was a pain in the arse for her because she had to go find someone new. But so there's things like that, you know, when women are kind of, when they see, um, I really owe her a lot. I think that thing of making, when you've been given little breaks like that, which turn into, you know, all those little bits of the chain that all link yes. together and make something really profound and really strong. And one of the things of getting older is being able to do that for other people as well, I sure. think is a really, really great, great feeling. And I think we get better at life by observing other people doing it and mm. observing what other people are doing. Do you think we get better at being brave by seeing people, women like Pam? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I think I think it's really important to, I don't know, to try and carry on the chain in, in every yeah. way that you can. Mm. Um, I speak to a lot of younger women coming up, DJs, producers, radio DJs, and just try and... It's kind of a lot of it's just dispelling the myth, you know, just just being like showing people different ways of doing things mm. and, and also helping them feel empowered mm. by letting them know how valuable their passion is. There's a Marianne Hobbs quote, never underestimate the power of your passion, mm. which I always think is so powerful because it's like that thing, that burning desire to do and feel or express yourself in a certain way is so valuable. And if you can harness it mm. and believe in yourself enough, you can do anything with it. And th th there's always so many bloody barriers and doors closed and people telling you, well, that's just not how, we just don't really do, th do it that way. It's not really how it's done. We don't, you know, there's always that. And you just have to figure out your way within it. But And that conviction to just keep pushing yourself is really interesting. And in the mess we're in, you... Mm. Well, I say you, you know, I'm going to take this as Orla. it's, yeah, Orla, yeah. <laughs> um, lives with the band and the band get dropped. Mm. and But they're also away a lot of the time. So she's on her own a lot of the time. And you've described living with your brother in London mm. when he was away touring. You said that you were away, they were away so much they'd come back and you'd like have painted the whole, the, the whole house purple or something like that. <laughs> yeah. When you were spending that time on your own, what gave you the kind of conviction, the bravery to keep believing yourself and keep pushing yourself and not just kind of, I suppose, you know, it'd be easy to kind of curl up and do nothing or get depressed or or kind of not keep pushing yourself. What was firing you then? I think there was a sense of, of passion and ambition. I was, I've always been so ambitious. Mm. Um, music, discovering music, mm. you know, that excitement of just discovering a new band or a new artist, a new rapper or something, just feeling so like swept up in in it um making mixtapes mm. was doing a lot of that mm. very crudely on my decks um going to gigs 
and being inspired, just just really trying to throw myself into as much music as I could really helped. I was also writing songs on the guitar. Just, I don't know, all of that. I, my family, like, we're all mad doers. We're not very good at sitting still. Yeah. My friends always say that about me. That I'm not very good at just being. I'm working on it, but I'm just not very good at sit, just, just sitting mm. and being. I have to do. So... If you came around my house and we hung around for a couple of hours, I couldn't just sit with you and chat. Right. I would have to get up and be sweeping or yeah. <laughs> doing something or make something or like, you know, I can't, I'm just not good like that. So I'm, I, in terms of like getting through a day and being motivated to get up and do stuff, I've never had issues with mm, that. Mm. Probably to my detriment, actually. I love that idea of you like making mixtapes and writing music and working and working and working away at it. None of you becoming Annie Mac is not something that happens like a series of happy accidents, is mm, it? Mm. It is. And it's, it's nice hearing you use the word ambition as well, because I think sometimes we're almost a bit, you know, slightly ashamed of it in a way. Uh, do you think we as women or we as, a, a, you know, people from the UK? People from the UK, right. I think, probably, yeah. Mm. And I suppose ambition is a kind of bravery as well, isn't it? I think it really is. Mm. It's a faith in yourself mm. or a kind of, it's it's holding a hope for yourself, a sense of belief that you have the capacity mm. to go somewhere. Mm. Um, it's kind of betting on yourself. Betting way, on yourself, it? yeah. It's kind of betting on yourself. But yes, there's a bravery to that in that you are, pushing forwards through any sense of fear or doubt or anxiety, mm. you're pushing it. And mm. that, that, I mean, I suppose that's the definition of bravery, isn't it? It's kind of pushing through fear. Um, and also to sort of trust the expansion and then contraction of life, that there will be an expansion again, mm. you know? It's not going to be like a sort of upward trajectory all the time. It's mm. going to be the line upwards or along or through something is kind of zigzag really isn't it very much so what about the decision to leave radio one where you'd been for 17 years that was like an incredibly coveted spot did that feel like a brave decision to have a big sort of career pivot and leave something where you had been incredibly successful and you know presumably very happy and loved what you were doing mm. and to jump into the life of being a writer which is you know as a dj you're right in the center of 80,000 people or radio station as a writer mm. um as we know you're like on your own in a room <laughs> you and the computer <laughs> i mean I've, it's it's really interesting talking about you know courage with that everyone said at the time oh my god you're so brave but with this kind of sense of i, I kind of, it felt loaded it was like what the fuck are you doing kind of you know right yeah um people used to stop me in the park and be like are you sure <laughs> yes it's good and i was sure I, I had a lot of conviction in my decision i was i was really sure and i felt really happy and relieved to be sure um i was sure because i had taken up writing and written my first book and it had felt so like a sense of coming home that it, it it was kind of I had so much conviction in knowing that I wanted to do that mm. but what I didn't really fully plan for and I couldn't have because I didn't know really what it was going to be like was the life of a writer and so for me the being brave bit has really come in probably at the end of last year when work really did kind of dry down mm. of my own willing. Mm. The gigs really dried down in autumn, winter. Um, everything was much quieter and I just really was in the house on my own a lot. Mm. And I found that really hard. 
I have to say, I've just actually finished writing a piece for The Observer about it, about feeling lonely for mm. the first time because I hadn't realised, I'd never had to realise, that my entire life I've been surrounded, physically surrounded mm. by people, whether it's squished up in the back of my dad's Volkswagen Passat with my brothers and sisters as a child or sat, you know, in a big warehouse or room or wherever I'm playing in front of thousands of people. Mm. I've chosen vocations that have put me right in the middle of connection. And suddenly I'm at home in my own thoughts with no one to talk to all day, going a bit mad. Mm. Um, and I found that, you know, the actual writing aspect I loved, but whenever I had to write, hand my book in, as you know, when mm. you hand your draft in, you have to wait like a couple of months. Yeah before you're able to make, you know, before people read it and I need to be removed from it enough to be able to come back to it and really see it without being too close to it. You know, I need to be able to cross, you know, edit out loads of huge swathes of words. So I always have to put it away for six weeks and then come back and that bit, oh mm. my God, I just found so hard. Mm. I couldn't I, I, I couldn't write about anything. I wasn't inspired to write anything short form. Mm. I was just, I felt quite lost actually. Mm. So do you love writing? You yes. love the process yes. of it. Yes. You love it. Because I love it and I hate it I lo- I so much the at actual, the same time. The actual writing, you know, when you're writing a story yeah. and you're in a story and you're inhabited, you're consumed yeah. by another world, Amazing. there's nothing better. Yeah, it's better than any high, isn't it's it? It's better. Any you're high. In, like time yeah. disappears. Mm. There was also a word that I really loved in um, in the mess we're in, when the band gets dropped, you describe, I think it's Frank, that he looks grief struck. Mm. And I just thought that was such a brilliant observation, actually, because I have had books rejected before. I had two novels rejected in my 20s and 30s and the devastation of that, the kind mm. of creative. And nobody's died. You know, nothing yeah. terrible has happened. Yeah. There hasn't been an awful accident or disease. or, But you feel like a sense of grief. And mm. I think that... Um, that I'm, that's why I'm sort of really interested by creative bravery. And you must have, you know, spoken to so many young artists who really, really want to make it. Right. And they're not all going to. No. And dealing with dealing with that, does it give you a kind of, how does it make you feel about those those people who are trying and maybe, you know, the vast majority are not getting to the place of great success as an artist that they want? I mean, that's, that's why I really wanted to show in the mess we're in, the other side. Mm. You know, the 97% of bands who get dropped, who don't end up having a career, and the awfulness that comes around that when you're hyped, 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 mm. pushed, 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 told you're the best thing in the world, and then the absolute mental health catastrophe that goes on when you're just dropped, mm. literally just left. All your support systems, all your money, uh, your sense of self, your identity, everything's wrapped up in this and it's just gone. I think the music industry can be so brutal mm. and so cruel and I think I don't know I would like to think it might be changing a little bit with how young people are see mental health and the kind of discourse around it it's more people I think there, there's a sense of responsibility maybe more with mm. you know you, uh, labels now have therapists mm. and you know think things mm. are changing in that way but um you know I saw it happen to my brother's band mm. twice and uh, it's it's never good. Mm. It's never fun. It's it's never easy. Uh, you'd have to be very strong to be able to withhold that and to move through it and to keep going, to keep creating. And there's a sense of knowing yourself and, and believing in yourself that you need to have. Mm. So the fact that you were able to get rejected from for two novels, which, by the way, I would like to read <laughs> and you should publish, um, 
and then keep going mm. is remarkable mm. and is testament to you and and I suppose your own passion you're you, you're having to the write the need to create you're having to mm. write mm. um so I guess it's a, it's a test of of your, the true motivation for why you do it you mm. know mm. if you're going to keep like my brother is still making music you know he's 40 six he still he still writes he still plays guitar that's brilliant. because it's part of who of he is mm. he has to mm. um and I, I i think when you're young you believe that these people who sign you and these people who look after you and these people who a and r you are the authorities mm. and what you realize when you work in the industry is that everyone's a blagger mm. and everyone has no more clue than the next man and the best authority on your work will be you really yeah and there are those who will have great success and you know record deals and book deals and all the stuff that we think of as success but actually the process of creating and I found writing books that like I thought having a book launch and doing festivals that was going to be the really exciting bit of being a writer but for me that bit that I actually find really terrifying and really really difficult of sitting on my own but then you get into the flow if you're lucky mm. you know and that that is what the writing is about. So whether you get the record deals or the book deals or not, keep on creating. Basically, mm. you know, you don't need somebody else's kind of um, approval. Approval, yeah. yeah, yeah. And th you know, the fact of your brother continuing to to make mm. music, I'm not at all surprised by that. It's so important. Um, I'll tell you what was really scary about the switch mm. um, was going from being that gatekeeper, it's that person on the radio who who make make or break bands you know that was my job for years mm. was to kind of create careers and play songs first and you know it was a huge responsibility and I tried not to think about it too much because if you thought about it too much it would wreck your head mm. and it would also wreck your judgment and I had to be very true to my sense of conviction about whether a song moved me and whether I was playing it for the right reasons not because it was hyped not because someone told me to play you know because mm. it it felt something about it moved me mm. you have to really have a sense of conviction in yourself to be a gatekeeper at that level to be someone who makes or breaks bands and I think the the very you know that person there's less and less of those type of people because the way people consume music has been democratized mm. because of streaming so everyone can TikTok can make or break bands and artists, yeah. which is wonderful. But what was very interesting was going from being that person to being the artist, so yeah. as, as in the person who was there to be criticized yeah. and to be read or not read. Yeah. Um, I had never experienced that before. And that was that was terrifying, I have to say, but also hugely exhilarating. Yeah. Um, and I felt such a sense of imposter syndrome I had a sense of everyone being like, who does she think she is? You're one swanning in, being a novelist now. And I just kind of imagined everyone's criticism in my head and uh, wrote a book that was quite contrary as opposed to what people's expectations would have been, what I would write about, I suppose. Mother, Mother, your first novel was mm. so interesting because it really wasn't what we were expecting, which was the mess we're which in, mess basically. <laughs> <laughs> which, and I've loved both books and yeah. I love Mother, Mother because it kind of took my breath away yeah. in terms of how, where did that come from? Wow, mm. that was mm. left field. And it's so, the writing is beautiful. And mm. I mean, I've just finished my fourth book, but I still feel nervous about the whole process do you feel more bravery about being a writer do you are you kind of moving on to the next next bit of writing how how does that feel no I don't feel any mm. more bravery about it but I kind of like that 
Mm. I feel exhilaration and anticipation. Like I, I haven't really had time to think about the next book, but the thinking of thinking about the next book mm. is fun. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to, like I'm thinking of, I've always wanted to do a writing retreat. I've never done that. So the idea of going away somewhere for a week or 10 days and mm. just burying, burying myself in that is so exciting. But I don't think I'll ever feel confident uh, in terms of putting my books out in the world. I still am such a novice and I still have so much to learn, but I'm quite excited by learning and, mm. I, and I like a challenge. And I'm so happy that I've made the jump um, it feels, even with all the misery of rattling around the house on my own and all of that, I'm glad I have because mm. it feel it makes me feel it makes you feel alive. Like I've I've never really had a chance to sit and mine my own thoughts mm. in a way mm. before. That as I said, the last fifteen years have been chaos. So mm. there's something lovely about having to kind of just sit with myself for a while. I think it's important to kind of that it should go on being nerve wracking. I think if we were Agreed. sitting down thinking, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. Right. This is, you know, this is easy. A, it wouldn't be very interesting. Right. You know, there is the adrenaline mm. of fear, mm. you know, and kind of mustering your bravery and your creative bravery, I mm. suppose, and going for it again. Mm. Um, so it should be it should be a nerve wracking process, I yeah. think. Yeah. There's something I wanted to ask you about the kind of way that we live now, I suppose, and you talked about the kind of um, decline, and it must be much worse now because of the pandemic, but you were in an interview in 2019, you talked about the decline of clubs and the dance floor, yes. and the, the idea of a lot of partying was now at festivals, but that was much more about, well, a big element of that was about looking good on Instagram and having your squad and doing your contouring and the way you looked, basically. And there was a sort of, you were lamenting the loss of the kind of subterranean, mm -hmm. sweaty, dirty, almost ugly, but for that fact, very, very beautiful dance floor. And it was, and it's the same kind of thing that I think when I think about the free party scene where nobody had phones, you know, yeah. everybody looked a complete mess all the time. And when I sort of look back at that scene and also further back to the kind of spirit of punk, I wonder if we are in danger of trying to control everything too much. And is there a, do you feel a sense that we need to kind of be a bit more fearless about fucking up and not worrying so much about how it all appears on a screen? And is there a kind of loss of in because when we're trying to control things we're losing sort of that sense of recklessness I suppose and that kind of sense mm. of creative and life recklessness do you think there's a way that we need to step beyond that I suppose or do you think there's something that we're lo we've lost at the moment in terms definitely, of definitely definitely mm. I think there's a real sense of freedom mm. in not having to be constantly aware of how you look mm. um you just, it just takes up so much of your time. Mm. It's so exhausting. I mean, in clubs now, when they do exist, when you are there, everything is experienced mm. through a screen. Mm. So instead of hands going in the air when you have a big moment, it's it's torches mm. from your phone. And it's, it's really changed everything, I think. Um, so even with the best audience in the world, you know, who, who are there to have the best time, there is a wall between you and them, which is made of glass and mm. it's an iPhone shape. And that is that is it's hard to really get that sense of raw connection mm. that I experienced in clubs again 
And I don't think I'm being nostalgic like back in the good old days. Like I, I, I genuinely do think mm. that there's something missing. And I think a lot of DJs would agree. Mm. And there is clubs that don't allow phones or put stickers over phones and, and they're becoming more and more common. It's something I'm considering for my own club. Now. That's it's cool actually, actually isn't it? Yeah. I don't like dictating how people should behave, but equally I do feel like I would hope that people would invest in that idea of, of, not, of not being able to use their cameras in a club. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do think that sense of recklessness is, is definitely gone. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a vast question. It's hard to, mm. it's hard to answer, but in, in the prism of clubs, I think there is scope to help that. And mm. it's just by, by putting in that rule. Can we talk just briefly about the kind of bravery of um, motherhood, I suppose, yeah. and what that demands of you? Because I think that we can, you know, you can have like a big successful career, but spending time on your own with kids can be a really, really challenging thing to do I, as well. I really agree. And on thinking about bravery this morning on the Tube, that's actually what came, came up in my head the most, mm. is this sense of leaning in to the absolute monotony mm. and isolation and um, mundanity of young children mm. at home, um, losing your sense of self. It's very, very, very insidiously terrifying. It's ter it is terrifying. When yeah. you give up a job or you give up your identity and your identity is defined by being a mother. I didn't have to experience it too too much. I was incredibly lucky because I was determined not to stop working. I was the breadwinner. I wanted to keep going. Uh, we got a nanny um, when my oldest kid was four months. Both me and my husband were absolute, like our lives were chaos. We didn't have a fucking clue how to parent. Mm. I mean, no one does. We're all blagging it, but we had to learn on the job a lot. But those women that I see who are kind of in the thick of new parenthood that you see in the park pushing, looking glazed and dazed. Mm. Um, I feel so deeply for them still because mm. I know how it feels and it's terrifying. The fear of keeping a child alive, mm. the fear of fucking up, the fear of getting it wrong. There's a real bravery in, a very quiet bravery in mm. doing that day in, day out. Mm. Uh, whilst your sense of self feels like it's slowly eroding, you know, you're kind of forgetting who you are. Mm. It's incredibly brave. Yeah, and I think that parents who are doing that and doing it really wholeheartedly, like, deserve more recognition Agreed. as well for Agreed. the kind of courage because it's a long... Bravery is almost like a fast walking out on that stage in front of 80,000 mm. people, but then the courage to, like, remain connected and keep... Yes. Keep sort of putting the time into parenting is... It's, it's difficult, It's huge, it? and it's not just babies. Mm. I mean, it's still it's still the case now, you know. Mm. There's sacrifices. I think you, always, you, you, know, you have to make sacrifices all the way through parenting. Mm. And um, I mean, it's your, you're choosing to have a baby. It's a privilege. I'm not saying that that it isn't, but I suppose there's a real, I mean, you're so good at talking about it in your work in, in a very real way, in a very relatable way, which I think is why so many people, you know, are, are so moved and find your book so meaningful because it's not often that you find people who are able to talk about the dark side of parenting mm. in such a kind of real and relatable way. But I really, when I read your books, was like touched by that by by those feelings oh, of thank you. fear and 
darkness and confusion and disillusionment and disorientation, mm. all of that. Mm. Yeah, it can be a really, really terrifying place to be. What do you teach your kids about being brave? Is it something to mm. you that you kind of instill in them? Uh, there's there's quite a lot of fear in my house, actually. My oldest son uh, is, is one of the most common things that he says. I'm scared. Mm. I'm scared. Always at night. Um, so I've spent a lot of time sat, sat in the dark waiting for him to fall asleep. Mm. And I've really battled with that myself with the right way to deal with that. I go from being like, come on, you're grand, to then being like, God, he needs to be allowed to be scared, you know. Mm. And I've I've been through such a journey with mm. knowing how to parent him. So I try and teach them, I suppose, by doing things myself. I, m my thing is just like, I don't want to tell them how to behave. I don't want to put words in their mouth or anything. But I hope that by being an example and going out to work and doing gigs and seeing how I live my life, that mm. they will feel more brave. Um, and by going into situations, social situations, you know, my husband never wants to go out. He never wants to, I'm so opposite to him. He mm. never wants to go to parties. I'm always dragging him along. Mm. So it's kind of, it, it's having to be that person that, you know, leads everyone in behind me <laughs> to a room. Come on. <laughs> Well, the fact that your son, you know, this morning you said at breakfast, your son was saying, you're always brave. So yeah. it's, you're showing them something. You're, you're doing that. You're succeeding in that. Mm. And I have to say, actually, the interview that you did with your husband on Changes, your podcast yeah. about his ADHD diagnosis was one of the bravest, most brilliant interviews I've ever listened to. Mm. And there's so much being said about ADHD at the moment. And it's the first time I've really heard it explained in a way that I could vividly understand. And it made me think about one of my children particularly. It was like, mm. yes, like, yeah. that, you, you know, your husband was explaining everything that I kind of could see in my son. And I'm yeah. really, really, really grateful for that interview. And it was really brave to kind of... It was very brave of yeah. him, wasn't it? Yeah. I thought it was so brave of mm. him. He's, like, he's incredibly brave in mm. lots of ways, I think. He's very open and willing to ex show himself mm. to people and um, I've never had such a reaction to, I don't think I've ever, anything I've ever done mm. in that interview. I still get messages every week about it. It was people. brilliant. It was yeah. really, really brilliant. Before we wrap up, I was just thinking for somebody listening to this um, yeah. who might be feeling afraid or in need of to feel braver, I suppose. They might be facing a big thing, like a big work challenge or a smaller thing, like, you know, it can be a brave act just to get out of bed when you're feeling really, really Absolutely. bad. Absolutely. What advice would you give to somebody who's feeling like, I can't do this? I would say, don't try not to be afraid of fear. Mm. So when you feel that feeling of fear, um, don't take that as a trigger to stop whatever you're doing. I suppose it's kind of allowing the fear to sit in your body but doing it anyway. Mm. So not mm. letting that fear dictate your actions is the key, um, which is very easier said than done. I'm not sitting here pretending it's easy, but I suppose it's kind of acknowledging how you feel mm. without letting it flatten you. Mm. That's mm. the key. Um, and you will feel fear all the way through your life and it will come and go in, and it's just about learning how to see it and feel it and let it pass. 
Yeah, and I think that 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 to be reminded that you will feel it all your life is really, really important. It's a really yeah. profound thing to say. Yeah. It's it's not something you feel when you're a little kid no. or as an adolescent. It's there all the time. It's part of being human. Mm. And you've kind of, you can. And there's also a sense where sometimes I crave it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but, you know, when life feels safe mm. and predictable, you know, and I've I've orchestrated for it to be that way, mm. sometimes I've, I I have a sense that I want to feel afraid. And I think it's I think it's really healthy mm. to do that, to to kind of push yourself to to the edges of fear, um, because that's when you feel alive. Yeah, and that's what we all want to feel, isn't mm-hmm. it? That sense of connection mm. and the kind of brilliance of of being a human, the mm. weirdness and the brilliance. Mm. Thank you so much, Annie. It's been really really awesome talking to you. Such I've a loved pleasure. it. Thank it's you for having great. me. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I'm Clover Stroud, and I really look forward to sharing more brave conversations with some of the amazing guests I have lined up. To keep up with the episode drops, please follow Tiny Acts of Bravery on your podcast platform. And of course, I would be so grateful if you'd rate and review my podcast. And I will be back next week with another brilliant guest.